Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It, it, it occurred to me while I was preparing for this show earlier this morning that we're going into a weekend and on Monday we'll... Um, mark another Memorial Day, a day when we commemorate the lives of the many people uh, killed in uh, wars, many Americans killed in wars, many of whom were killed with exactly the kind of weapons that we're now seeing uh, it in um, the terrible shootings in places like Uvalde, Texas, and others. Um, I don't know how to bring those two thoughts together. It's just it struck me that on one hand, we honor our war dead. And on the other, we seem to have a problem with dealing with the same weapons being used in in so many awful mass shootings in this country. Um, I want to give you just a few statistics before I introduce the panel. Um, and, and, and there are these. There are now 400 million guns owned privately in the United States, according to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Gun manufacturers, uh, says uh, uh, the Bureau, uh, produced more than 11 million new weapons in 2020, almost triple the number they produced in 2000. Um, in 2020, there were 1,897 deaths by gun in the state of Georgia. Uh, that compares to just 10 years earlier when there were 527 deaths uh, by guns in Georgia. Nationally in 2020, 45,000 people died by gun, by firearms. Half of those were suicide. Murders increased by a third from 2019 to 2020. Uh, three, four, three quarters of those murders were committed by guns. I mean, those are just staggering and shocking statistics to sort of frame a much larger conversation today. And as I said in the headline to this show, um, you know, we're tired of the cliches on both sides. Um, we're tired of hearing this carnage must stop. Of course it must. We're tired of hearing it's uh, people, not guns. It's mental health issues. It's not a matter of firearms. And of course, we're all really tired of hearing thoughts and prayers. There's got to be some way to address this crisis. And we're going to talk about that today with our special guest, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who I'll introduce more formally in just a moment. But first, let me say hello to Jim Galloway. You know him well as the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, Jim, you wrote, and we're going to read them in a little while, some really riveting words uh, in the aftermath of Vivalde, and it's going to lead us into part of our conversation. But thank you so much for being here today, Jim. No, I, I wish I could say happy Friday, but it isn't really, is it? No, it's a really troubling day. All right, let's let's introduce Mark Rosenberg. Mark Rosenberg, those of you who've listened to the show regularly for some time have heard Dr. Rosenberg on our show uh, in the past talk about guns, but this is the day we need to bring him back to talk about them um, again and in more depth. Dr. Rosenberg um, was a, a high-ranking official at the Centers for Disease Control when in 1983 he began a, a project to study gun violence, do research on gun violence, uh, hoping that uh, by looking at data, there might be some answers to how to curb the problem. He became the director of the centers, uh, uh, the Center for Injury Prevention and Control in the mid-90s. And we're going to talk about his personal story uh, in which his job in that capacity was cut short. Um, Mark, first of all, thank you for being here today to talk with us. Thanks for having me, Bill. This is an appropriate time on Memorial Day, not only to remember, but to try and get clear on the way forward, because there is a way out of this. Mark, I'm going to start the show and my, our conversation with you uh, by turning to the world of sports. 
Uh, you have always believed, ever since the early 80s, when you began researching uh, uh, get gun violence, trying to gather data on gun violence, you have said uh, the same thing that we are about to hear the Golden State Warriors head coach, Steve Kerr, say in a news conference after his team uh, made, won a game that puts them in the NBA championship. So let's listen to a sports figure talking about the very thing you have talked about for years. You know, I, I think we, we almost have, have to look at it like a public health issue. You know, I think too often we get caught up in political rhetoric, um, you know, Second Amendment rights, um, NRA stuff. Um, we have to look at this as uh, it has nothing to do with partisanship or political party. This has got to be a public safety issue, public health issue. Mark Rosenberg, uh, Steve Kerr, who's always been a thoughtful uh, uh, person, really sums up. And, and in many ways, people pay attention to sports figures in the way they don't pay attention to a lot of the rest of us. But he sums up exactly what you believe about the need to study gun violence as a public health crisis. Yes? Absolutely. Steve Kerr has been a hero and consistent and persistent in this. And when he says we need to look at this as a public health problem, I think it means three things. We need to use science, get science on our side, because this is a problem we can solve. This is a cause and effect world. If we understand the causes, we can solve the effects. The second thing is let's focus on prevention. We do need to intervene after, but go upstream and let's stop it before it happens. And the third thing is we need to work together to solve this. There's no one of us. There's no one organization. There's no single magic bullet that's going to solve it, but we need to work together. So absolutely, he's right on. Jim? Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, Dr. Rosenberg, I'm just wondering if how you, yes, 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 I, I can understand that this is a public health issue. I also see it as a, as a, as a dire social issue. How can you, how how do those two mix? How uh, if 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 we're if we treat gun violence as a disease, how do you treat the social aspect of this? That 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 we've, we've got a we've got a we've got a culture that 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 gives way to to firearms in this country. We do, Jim, and I think there is a myth that is killing us, and this is a social myth, and the myth is that we can't prevent gun deaths without taking away everyone's guns. That's the myth, and that myth is scaring people. It's killing us, it's stopping us from taking action and focusing. The other social part of this that screams for attention is that young black men are killed at a rate, not double, not triple, quadruple, 20 times as high as the rate for young white men being murdered by guns. This is a disparity and injustice and inequity that we can't allow to go on. Again, it's something we can figure out and stop. But absolutely, it's a social issue. It's a psychological issue. It's a criminal justice issue. We all have to work together on this. And and how how do you get to those social issues? That's I, I think that's that's the root of this problem. I mean, if 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 this were a matter of if this were a matter of say uh, say when uh, when we, when we discovered the, the the danger of riding around in a car without a seatbelt, uh, well, you pass a law that requires seatbelt. You tie it to federal funding, and 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 so states have to one by one adopt a seatbelt law. How do you? That so how do you how do you how do you move that needle with with the with with the with this mythical um, magical I'd say uh, pre pre predominance that we give to guns? It's a really good analogy that you bring up, Jim, because if you look at the problems in road safety, they teach us a lot of lessons that will be useful for here. One of the biggest ones is that. When people were starting to design interventions for cars, starting to think about seatbelts before they even had airbags, the motor vehicle manufacturers said, stop this. Safety won't sell. If you make us put seatbelts in cars, people won't buy them. 
If you make us put airbags in cars, people won't be able to afford them. You are going to kill the car industry. And look what happened. Safety not only does it sell, it is the biggest selling point for cars. This is the first thing that people look at when they go to buy a car. Is it safe? We converted that. We turned it around. And our task now is how do we turn this one around in the same way? Everybody wants safety. People for gun rights don't want their kids killed. They don't want school shootings. They don't want shootings in churches. They don't want shootings in their home, in the community. We've got to turn it around, but we can. Mark, I'd like to um, really dig into a little more uh, uh, this um, concept of treating gun violence as a public health uh, crisis. I mean, this is something that you've been known for really since uh, since the 80s and 90s. And and I think it's important that we talk a little bit about exactly what you mean by that. If you don't mind, I'm going to read something that you wrote in the aftermath of the Parkland uh, massacre. You said most of these deaths, speaking of Parkland, could be prevented by using research to find interventions that both reduce gun violence and protect gun rights, using science to identify evidence-based solutions similar to those that save so many lives from motor vehicle crashes, heart disease, cancer, and smallpox. And then you go on to say, if the government were to stop research on cancer, heart disease, or strokes for even one day— there would be a huge outcry. So let's talk about that. In what way do you think gathering data on guns can help us find solutions for the uh, prevalence of gun violence? It's a really good question, Bill, that gets to the heart of this approach. Let's look at the point Jim raised about motor vehicle injuries. In the 1960s, young people were being killed on the highways in rates that people found unacceptable. And people said, we've got to put a stop to this. So the government started to invest money in research. They invested $200 million to start. And they've invested $200 million a year every single year to research motor vehicle injury prevention. And what they discovered through the research was that you could redesign the car. In the 60s, they had steering columns that in a front-end crash came through and impaled you like a spear. And there were pictures of this in front-end collisions. They had engine blocks that came into the passenger compartment and crushed you like an anvil. They redesigned these. They have steering columns that collapse and protect your chest. They have front-end engine blocks that collapse like an accordion and protect you in a front-end collision. They have side impact collision, rollover collection protection, rear-end collision protection. They have seatbelts. They designed airbags out the wazoo. You have front airbags, you have knee airbags, head airbags, side airbags. And as a result, the car is much, much safer. They also looked at the roadways and they said, We've been designing roads that are flat and straight and wide, and that leads people to take off like on an airport runway. They try to fly. Let's make them curvy. Let's make them go up and down, side to side, narrow and wide. And they got people to slow down. So they redesigned the car. They redesigned the roadways. They redesigned drivers and got drunk drivers and impaired drivers off the road. And they brought down the motor vehicle injury death rate and resulted in a saving of 600,000 people. And we said, let's do the same thing for gun injuries and gun deaths. We said, how much is the government investing in research on guns? It turned out almost zero, almost zero. So we said, let's start this. Let's see what we can find. Let's apply science. Let's look for interventions that will reduce gun deaths. And my friend, but previously my arch enemy, Jay Dickey, who was a spokesperson for the NRA and led to the Dickey Amendment, he said, we've got to find interventions that will both protect gun rights, the rights of law-abiding gun owners, and reduce gun violence. 
and science will find the way. Okay, I want to explore that more. And I also want to talk about Jay Dickey and the Dickey Amendment, because I think your personal story of dealing with this issue of how to study gun violence really informs us about some of the issues uh, when politics come into play in trying to deal with gun gun violence. But let's put that, if you don't mind, to the side for a minute. And let me just go back to your whole uh, comparison of all of the research on on uh, road safety and what it led to with cars and the way roads were designed, and ask you if there are examples of what the data can do to help prevent gun violence. If there are 400 million guns in circulation, as ATF tells us, um, in what way are you going to be able to find data that will make somehow guns safer or people less threatened by them? One of the lessons that we've learned in public health, Bill, is that we have to know the truth. We have to know how many guns are there, where are they, how are they used, how many people get shot? Under what circumstances? What's the relationship between the shooter and the victim? Where do the guns come from and what kind of guns are they? And most important, are these things increasing or decreasing? For motor vehicle injuries, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration set up some databases where they collected data on every single fatal crash and data on non-fatal crashes. And these databases have proven invaluable in understanding the problem and helping us address it. For gun violence, the NRA stopped us from collecting even these very basic data. And it's just been the persistence of certain researchers and a dedicated band of epidemiologists and scientists at CDC that has now started to help us collect that data but we've had huge gaps and still have huge gaps in the understanding. Uh, uh, Jim, I want to give you, I'm going to get you to jump in, but I think uh, Mark Rosenberg just said something that relates to what you're a very important question about how do you deal with the social side of this? He's suggesting that the notion of how data can be used to prevent more gun violence is not just about things like locks on guns, uh, storage of guns. He's talking about studying the relationships between the shooter and the victim, which goes to the heart of what you talked about, which is what are the social conditions that uh, uh, lead to gun violence. But go ahead, please. Well, well, a two-part, a two-parter for Dr. Rosenberg. Uh, well, first of all, yes, I, I, I would. To me, right now, our social problems are just this penetrating uh, aura of nihilism that you see among among young gun, gun owners, uh, who, if the world is challenging them, if they if they feel lost, the one thing they can do is they can take a gun and, in their own world, bring it all down. So there's that. Uh, the the when you talk about the just the just the massive. Uh, homicide rate among uh, black youths, you know, it, 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 it's, I, I'm looking at an, at kind of honor code killings, if you will. Uh, in, in a way, it reminds me quite a bit of, of early 19th century uh, history in the South among white Southerners, or among aristocratic Southerners, where they develop their own codes and settle things outside the law. So, th- so th- those are two aspects that I'd, I'd like to know how, how you might go about changing that. The other part is it's simply mechanical. Okay, let's talk. If we could carry the seatbelt uh, metaphor a little bit further, if 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 you were if you were the king of Congress, what would a gun look like? Uh, what changes would people be able to see on on it uh, in, in their gun stores as they as they as they choose to pick out a safer firearm? I, again, very good questions. In terms of the social aspects here, another use of data and research, besides describing and understanding the problem, is to look at what are the causes? What's behind the killings? What's behind school shootings? What's behind young men shooting each other? What's the role of gangs? What's the role of drugs? What's the role of alcohol? What's the role of mental illness? and tougher, but maybe even more important, what's the role of poverty and hopelessness 
lack of access to education, lack of access to jobs. What's the role of each of these causes? We can understand it, but we've got to start looking. You talk about what might a gun look like. People have said we need smart guns. They looked at shootings of police officers. 25% of all police officers who are killed with a gun are killed with their own gun. Someone grabs it and shoots the officer. And someone said, what if the gun could only be fired by the owner? How could we do that? The owner could wear a ring that sends signals to the gun and it would only fire if it's in the hands of the person with the ring. The gun could identify fingerprints to unlock it and set it off. It could only be fired by the owner. Kids who grabbed their parents' gun wouldn't be able to shoot their brother or sister or mother or father. And criminals wouldn't be able to grab a cop's gun. And uh, we'd be well on the way to reducing gun violence. So these are called smart guns. It's a very good idea. And the CEO of Smith & Wesson said, this is such a good idea, I'm going to start making these. But the NRA and the other manufacturers didn't like the idea, and they stopped it. They said, if people have smart guns, then someone who gets shot with a regular gun could sue the owner of that gun because it wasn't a smart gun. They said, we don't want all our gun owners to be liable for having guns that aren't safe. This was not so different from the problem of driving cars without seatbelts or airbags or child seats. We overcame that problem. We can overcome this problem. So the gun can look very different. The owners can look very different. We can store guns safely. There's lots of things we can do with the gun. It doesn't mean either you address the gun or you address the social factors. It's not either or. It's all at the same time. That's what it's going to take, a multi-pronged effort. There's no one invention that's going to solve the problem. There's no one magic bullet. You know, you know Dr. Rosen, one thing that occurs to me is that what, what's missing here, uh, Bill brought up the, 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 the number of guns, 400 million in, in, in the United States. It, with cars, when you had the Corvair, when you had Ralph Nader and the Corvair, you had a, a system in, in the automotive industry of planned obsolescence. These cars would break down, they would fall apart, and so the, the consumer would be forced to buy another one. But it seems to me that with, with guns, you have something of, of, of an opposite problem because they are simple. Mechanically, they're, they're by and large pretty simple, and they last a long time. You can still fire a gun that was built in the 19, late 1900s safely. And, and, and that's uh, – I'm wondering how you would bring gun manufacturers into, into the playing field to, to, to call back those old weapons – and, 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 and sell consumers new ones. It's a really good point, Jim. We have 400 million guns in this country, but what's forgotten by everybody is that we have 320 million people who don't want their kids killed, who don't want their brothers and sisters, mother and fathers, cousins, neighbors killed and shot. We've got a lot of people who can work with us to make it safe, safer. But we've got to let people know that you can do this without drawing the ire of gun owners. 90% of gun owners want better gun safety laws and regulations, want universal background checks, don't want guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. 90% of gun owners want us to make it better so we can work together. Unfortunately, we have demonized the other side. We have said the other side is terrible. They're awful. They are the enemy. They are not. They are not the enemy. They are our potential allies, but we've got to get over this. And again, it comes back to what I call this myth that's killing us, the myth that if you listen to these gun control people, 
we're all going to lose our guns. If you listen to these grieving parents who say we've got to pass more sensible regulations, we're going to lose our guns. That's the myth. And we've got to wake people up. Just we woke people up to the fact that you could have safer cars, but still have manufacturers making cars. We have safer cars without banning cars. We can have safety from guns without banning guns. They're both possible. I, I think that's one of the most important points that you have been making for a very long time, that better gun laws do not mean surrendering guns. Making that point, getting it across to the people who uh, support the NRA is going to be a very difficult uh, task, obviously. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break on, on the show today. But when we come back, I want to talk about your personal story, Mark Rosenberg, because I think it tells us a lot about the political pressures that have created so many obstacles to passing gun safety laws recently in this country. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway are talking with Dr. Mark Rosenberg. He was one of the highest ranking officials of the Centers for Disease Control in the 80s and the 90s. He subsequently went on to become the president of the Task Force for Global Health, one of the country's uh, biggest, most influential public health organizations helping fight diseases literally around the world. Um, you know we're glad to have you here, Mark. But I think your personal story tells us a lot about the politics of guns. Uh, we, we've told it on the show at least once before, but it's worth repeating today, um, especially because the NRA is beginning its convention in Texas even as we speak. So, Mark, you were at CDC in 1983 when you decided it was time to uh, start studying gun violence to collect data on gun violence. That research went on for a period of time. You eventually became the director of the uh, Center for Injury Prevention and Control, which continued to do work on, on gun research. And then you were s shut down. Remind us of how you were shut down, what the political pressures were that took effect. Well, thanks, Bill. In the 1980s, we started looking at violence as a public health problem. And we looked at the example of motor vehicle safety. We saw that science had helped us save 500,000 lives. And the science is not rocket science, but it basically looked at two questions we've talked about. What is the problem? And what are the causes? There are two more questions the science was answering is, what works? How do you prevent this? And how do you test it to make sure it works? And the fourth question is, when you find things that work, how do you do it? How do you scale it up? How do you translate it into legislation and policy? So we saw what had been done in road safety. And we said, let's start to use science to answer these four questions in gun violence prevention. We started the research and the NRA did not like it. <clears throat> Excuse me. The NRA told its members, if you let this science go on, you are all going to end up losing all of your guns. It's either your guns or the research. You can't have both. So that was the amplification of this myth. But we kept on doing the work. The very first science we funded that was investigator initiated looked at this question, does having a gun in your home make you and your family safer? And what we found was a shocking surprise. We found not only does having a gun in your home not make you safer, it increases the risk. It increases the risk that someone in your household will be murdered by a gun 
not by 10% or 20, 30%, but by 200%, the risk tripled. And the risk that someone in your home would kill themselves with a gun, suicide by gun, went up 400%, five-fold increase. These were huge increases. And we published the findings. The NRA didn't like it, and they really scaled up their attack on us. They wanted to stop this and put us out of business. And they picked a congressman from rural Arkansas, Jay Dickey, to lead the charge at a congressional appropriations hearing where I testified with the director of CDC, David Satcher. And Jay Dickey used the talking points that the NRA gave him, and it was an ambush. Some of the things they said were untrue, some were distorted, most were taken out of context, but it was a really bad attack. And Congress responded in two ways. Some of the people in Congress thought that they should increase the research spending. Others thought that they should stop it altogether. And Jay Dickey introduced a compromise. He said that none of the funds that go to CDC shall be used to promote or advocate injury control. It didn't stop the research. It didn't prohibit research, but it may as well have said that. Because what happened was people in Congress could tell your dean if you were researching at an academic place, or they could tell the director of CDC or the secretary of HHS or the head of your foundation if you were researching money or the foundation. They could say this person is promoting gun control, advocating gun control. And even though you are not, they could force you to respond to these charges. And it effectively, it put an end to a lot of the research on gun violence prevention at CDC. And my bosses at CDC told me after that scathing hearing, they said, don't you ever talk to that congressman again, that Jay Dickey guy. It'll be like pouring gasoline on a fire. Stay away, <laughs> Rosenberg. And uh, okay, okay, boss, if that's what you want. It wasn't my nature, but they told me to do that. Then a few weeks later after the hearing, we got a request from Jay Dickey's staffer who said the congressman would like to hear about the data you used, and he'd like you to meet with his legislative assistant to review your data. And we thought, oh, data, they're really interested in understanding. So my bosses said, okay, Rosenberg, you can go up there, you can talk to the staffer, but get this straight. You do not talk to the congressman. You got it? Yes, boss. So I went up there. I met with the staffer. We spoke for an hour, and it was a really good meeting. He was really interested in the data. And as I was ready to leave with a smile on my face, he said, oh, by the way, the congressman is in there, and he'd like to say hello to you. And I gulped, and I said, oh, my God. Either I don't talk to him and I make him more angry because I'm rude, or I talk to him and I get fired. I decided, let me try to talk to him and avoid this subject. We did talk. We avoided that subject. We talked about it, kids, because his kids were on his wall in pictures. We talked about his kids and my kid, and it was really a good talk. Next thing I know, he invited my son and his class to tour Congress, and he met with all of them. And then I helped his daughter. We actually started talking not about guns at first, but family stuff. And then we started to actually trust each other, to like each other. Over the years, I would say we came to love each other. It was amazing. It really got to my heart. And Jay taught me, he taught me that you have to both reduce gun violence, but protect gun rights and let them know and I told him the public health approach. It became a friendship that illuminated us both. Well, I think there's an element that we have to add to this story. You ended up being fired from your position as director of the Centers for Injury Prevention and Control because of all of this. Um, you were let go. Political pressure uh, no other way to look at it, led to your dismissal. So that when we look in today's context at the way in which organizations like NRA, which isn't as strong as it was, we know that, but it still has a major influence. And we look at 
at the Senate right now, not able to do anything so far. Um, we understand how important politics continues to be, and your personal story is truly an example of that, Mark. It is an example of what can happen to you, Bill, if you stand up to this. And this intimidated the directors of CDC. And it wasn't until the current director, Rochelle Walensky, came on and said, this gun violence is a public health crisis, and our job is to protect the public health, and we're going to look into this. Four or five directors successively of CDC were afraid to take on the issue. And that same fear pervades senators and congressmen today. Um, Dr. Rosenberg, speaking of which, how far, how long do you think it's going to take for us to catch up? If we hadn't, back in, back in that era, if we hadn't cut off all gun, uh, gun violence research, if we had kept going, how long is it going to get, is it going to be before we have enough data that we can start building this world that you're, you're talking about? Great question, Jim. Fortunately, there have been a band of very devoted researchers and scientists who kept working on this problem. Some were at CDC and some were outside of CDC, but they found ways to get money to keep working. The problem is that, and we got the funding restarted. Three years ago, Jay Dickey's former wife, Betty Dickey, an amazing heroine in this effort, stood up and we testified and got the funding with support of lots of other individuals and organizations restored. So now it's going again, but it started at a trickle. We spent $200 million a year for 50 years for road safety. We're now spending $25 million a year on gun violence that takes more lives than road traffic deaths. But we can get it back up. We can restore it if we get rid of the fear, get people unafraid. The senator from North Dakota explained why he would never support anything to do with gun safety. He said that people wouldn't stand for it and he'd be fired like I was right away. We can get people to have backbones. We can get people to stand up for our children, for our people, for our young black men in our communities. We can get people to turn this around and we can. It doesn't have to be this way. It wasn't that way for road safety. It doesn't have to be that way for guns. So um, clearly one of the issues that really, really animates the conversation is the understanding, the interpretation of the Second Amendment. Jim Galloway, you wrote such a moving, brief, but so powerful a statement in the aftermath of the shootings in Texas. Do you mind if I read back to you the words that you posted on social media, Jim? Please do. You said... Bodies are piling up at the altar. At some point, honesty requires us to classify these dead children and shoppers as ritual sacrifices to a fetishized Second Amendment that allows 18-year-old boys and failed men to become unstoppable gods of destruction and acolytes of death. And that, Jim, is such a powerful statement, and it speaks to the heart of the Second Amendment as being uh, so crucial to the entire debate, Jim, about guns. Yeah, and, and I guess what I was trying to get at is is that the Second Amend Amendment has has become a crucial part of a belief system, of, of a very destructive belief system. <laughs> you know, it, when 9-11 happened, when you had all these... these uh, uh, Islamic terroristic attacks. So you know, on the, on 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 that military base in Chattanooga and such, we didn't question the mental health of the attackers. What we what what we acknowledged that that there was a logic to what they were doing, and it was locked in a belief system that we didn't agree with. We we found a repulsive, but we we understood that there was a logic here, and I think that's what we're missing in a lot of these 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 mass attacks is where where is the logic and and the logic i think is as i mentioned before is 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 really a form of nihilism 
It is, it is, it is, it is the, that part of the Second Amendment that says a gun is your your last resort when when the world is turning against you and and you have to bring it down or it brings you down. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Second Amendment and court decisions. We've got a huge court decision coming up uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, probably in late June, that relates to uh, proliferation of guns. And I want to do that after we come back from our final break for today's show. <clears throat> <coughs> Welcome back to Political Rewind. Dr. Mark Rosenberg, Jim Galloway with me today. Uh, Jim, I want to touch on uh, Second Amendment and constitutional and court issues just briefly on the show today. One of the things that's kind of fascinating uh, is to realize that it really wasn't until a Supreme Court decision in 2008 in District of Columbia versus Heller that the court actually guaranteed that an individual has the right to possess a firearm regardless of whether they are in a state militia or uh, have to use a firearm for traditionally lawful purposes. In other words, they could have guns in their homes. And it's hard for us to imagine that it was that recently that the court said, yep, you can, uh, the Second Amendment allows you to have a gun in many circumstances that it, we used to think it was prevented. Yeah, we've lost Jim's audio. I'm sorry to say, we'll get it ba back in just a second here. Um, so let me go on. Mark, I, I don't want to get you too deeply involved in uh, politics, um, but it is interesting that the right to have a gun in your home really wasn't uh, uh, confirmed until the court decision in 2008. It wasn't. It was seen as I think a we... right. It was seen as a right of militias. Can you hear me? You can't hear me. Oh, I hear you, Mark. Oh, um, the Second Amendment right was for many years seen as a right of an organized militia, the government and the government organized forces to have guns and possess guns. So Heller turned that around and said it was an individual right. And that's what the Constitution is now read as holding that up. It doesn't mean, and they said in Heller, it doesn't mean that there can be no restrictions or limitations on guns. It's not an unconditional universal right, but they said that the government can make laws regulating this right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Scalia wrote the majority opinion, and he did say there were exceptions. But today, Heller is used by the pro-gun forces as a, as a ruling, they claim, which says there are no restrictions on guns in the House. Jim? Right, right, and 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 uh, as you mentioned, we've got a New York the the New York State case, a uh, New York City case, uh, restricting where you can carry a concealed weapon, and we need to note, of course, that Georgia has just enacted a a any uh, you can carry any concealed weapon anywhere, uh, right now in in the state without a permit, and and I think this kind of this kind of goes if I, I, we need to address the logic here, uh, since since Heller since. We've had a, a burst of gun uh, gun legislation in the Georgia legislature, and it was always about where you could carry that weapon, whether you could carry that weapon to mm -hmm. a concealed weapon to church, whether you could carry it into a stadium, and it was always linked to the permit. And the argument was, and this from the NRA, from the from the legis Republican legislators, from all the gun enthusiasts, was that if uh, to carry this, you have to have a permit, you have to have a background che check. Uh, you have to be a good citizen. That has now been eliminated. There is there is no background check to carry a, a concealed weapon. You can do it. Anybody can do it. And police aren't allowed to ask you whether you're uh, you're you're carrying that weapon legitimately. Yeah, uh, we should say that that New York case uh, is exactly what I was talking about when I said that the Supreme Court is going to issue a ruling on that later uh, in terms of whether you can carry a concealed weapon outside of your home. And, and that ruling, we already think the conservative court is going to open the door for even broader 
uh, uh, carry laws in states around the United States. Um, Mark, I know before we uh, leave that w- there's another issue that, that uh, is important to you. One of the arguments we heard after uh, this horrible massacre in Texas was um, it's not guns, it's mental health issues that are the real problem here. Talk about mental health and guns for just a couple minutes, Mark. Well, I think that most people with mental illness never commit any act of violence. And most acts of gun violence are not done by people with serious mental illness. In fact, someone did a calculation, Dr. Jeff Swanson from Duke, and he found that if you magically had a cure for all serious mental illness, things like bipolar disorder, serious depression, schizophrenia, if you magically had a cure for all serious mental illness, it would only reduce gun violence by 4%. So when we say this is really a mental illness problem, it's a mental health problem, it's not. It's a fear to talk about the real problem. Mental illness accounts for a very small part. Look at the most recent shooters, two 18-year-old young men. And we don't know that they had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or serious depression. There are a lot of stresses that come from observing violence, being bullied, being victimized, being grown up in a situation where you're hopeless. That's not mental illness, but these are the social factors that we have going on. So we don't know the role of serious mental illness. It is over-exaggerated and it stigmatizes it stigmatizes people with serious mental illness. It doesn't help us control the problem. Mark, I'm sorry, but let me jump in on that because some of what you're saying seems counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of people. If an 18-year-old boy takes an assault weapon and goes into an elementary school and shoots and kills 21 people, um, everyone is going to suggest that there is something mentally wrong with him. But you're talking now about clinical definitions of mental health, not how uh, somebody's psychological makeup could lead to such a crime, right? That, that strikes me as a little counterintuitive. Yes, as a psychiatrist, when we talk about serious mental illness, we say define what illnesses you're talking about. And the serious major illnesses are serious depression, bipolar disorder, and thought disorders like schizophrenia. Yes, some people with these disorders do commit gun violence, but it's a tiny, tiny fraction of all of those people, maybe at the upper extreme, 4%. We call mental illness the pressures that we put people under when we remove all hope for succeeding, for having a family, for getting a job, for going to school, watching your mother beat your father, watching people in your community be killed. These are not mental illnesses, but these are part of the social disorder that we can address. Mental illness has been stigmatized and used, overused as an explanation when we're afraid to really look at the role of so many other factors. Thank thank you for that explanation. Jim, we got time for one more question from you. Yeah, uh, uh, I guess the the better phrasing might be a cultural illness or a social illness, mm. uh, uh, if, if if you will. Doctor uh, Doctor uh, Rosenberg, we talked about obsolescence. Bill, I I, I don't I, I if you will allow me to get on my high horse just a little bit here. Uh, uh, in Georgia, we have a law. Uh, it was passed in 2012, SB uh, 250, I believe, maybe 150, but it requires cities and counties to preserve weapons that have been used in crimes mm. and and to and to auction them off twice a year so that they can be put back into circulation uh it we were talking about planned obsolescence this is the opposite of it and i think it gets to that cultural uh cultural illness that you were talking about where we where we prize weapons above most everything Yeah, Mark, take just a minute to answer that before we have to uh, leave. Yeah, as a result of stopping research, we don't know if buying back guns works. 
we don't know very much that works or not. We know that locking guns up in a safe unloaded keeps kids from getting them. But we don't know for most things whether they work. Background checks, we don't know for sure. We don't have definitive evidence. If you ban the sale of assault weapons in high-capacity magazines, we don't know if that works. Concealed carry laws, we don't know if it works. Arming every teacher, we don't know if it works. Firearm sales reporting requirements, gun-free zones, licensing and permitting requirements. We are in a disgraceful position in this country. We have an epidemic raging that's scaring the wits out of people and we don't know what works. That's the bad news. The good news is we can find out and we can do better. Um, real quickly, Mark Rosenberg, when, uh, when the CDC began its gun research again, uh, they didn't ha have as much money as they need, but are they moving in the right direction? They are moving in the right direction. They have a director who's brave to stand up and say this is a problem. And they have the largest collection of violence prevention professionals in the world who are ready to go. They don't have enough funding. They need more, but they're good to go. What a wonderful conversation. Dr. Mark Rosenberg, I'm so grateful uh, to you for uh, joining us for today's show. Jim Galloway, always love having you with me on our Friday Political Rewinds. Um, I've got just a couple minutes here before we end the show, and I, I wanted to reserve it because we're saying goodbye today to a valuable member of our team. Sam Burmis Dawes has been with the show for, what, two and a half plus years. We plucked him away from Raleigh, Durham, where he was working in public radio. We hired Sam back then because he came in. He showed us how smart he is, insightful. His interest in politics jumped out at us. And for the entire time he's been here, he's been an extraordinary addition to the political rewind team. He wants to go back up to North Carolina, uh, where he's uh, got a great many friends and which feels much more like home to him. And so sadly, we're saying goodbye to Sam today. But Sam, we're so grateful for all the contributions, insights you've offered us on Political Rewind. On top of that, Sam Burmis Dawes is the one guy I can always talk about Premier League soccer with. And we're not going to stop doing that, in the, even though you're leaving town, Sam. So goodbye for now, Sam Burmis Dawes. Also, very quickly, thank you, Sarah Callis, Jake Cook, and Natalie uh, Mendenhall for your work on the show. Uh, pleasure to work with all of you. We're out of time for today. We're back again with a new show. Not on Monday. We're taking Memorial Day off. We'll be back on Tuesday. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody. Mm -hmm.